Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Getting the same empathetic statement or the same input from a machine as from a person are two different things. And even though, you know, the text is identical and, you know, the things we can measure overtly about the interaction are identical, the feelings, the beliefs, the background are different. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Some of you know, in the before time, I was planning an artificial intelligence series. Still hoping to do that, but you know, things got a little busy on other topics. When we were trying to figure out, though, what the right questions in that series were, something you immediately run into is that a lot of the questions that people ask around AI have to do with analytical intelligence, how smart computers can be in that framework? What if they're too smart in that framework, right? They're so good at making paper clips they destroy the entire world. It's this conversation that is very heavily about one kind of intelligence, about its powers and its limits, um, about what it means when we have it, when computers have it. But someone whose work I came across during this period that I found really interesting and really powerful for reframing some of this conversation was Rosalind Picard. She's the founder and director of the Effective Computing Research Group at MIT. She is the director of the Media Lab's Advancing Wellbeing Initiative. She's the author of the book Effective Computing, co-founder of Effectiva Incorporated, of Empatica Incorporated. Um, she's a patent holder, inventor, started companies, a whole deal, one of these real pioneers in the field. But what she is interested in is how computers interact, understand, read, and affect emotions. Um, what kind of emotional intelligence can they have? And how can that kind of computing make people's lives better, particularly for people whom it is hard for them to have their emotions read well by other human beings? Or it's hard for other human beings to read their emotions, or maybe there aren't human beings around them to read their emotions. This kind of work, um, I think it raises really profound questions about our world, um, particularly uh, loneliness here and the difficulty some of us have being understood. But it's also just a very fascinating way to think about computing. So this is a, a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. As always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Rosalind Picard. Rosalind Picard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Tell me how you got interested in the topic of the emotional capacity of computers and AI. Oh, dear. <laughs> Emotion was the last thing on the planet I wanted to have anything to do with. I, I was an electrical engineer working on computer vision and trying to understand 
how does the human brain see? How do we, in fact, how does that small uh, organ in there not only see, but hear and smell and taste and these incredibly complicated functions we were trying to do computationally. And as I was learning about how the brain works, I learned about this condition called synesthesia. And work that had been done on synesthesia showed that it wasn't happening in the parts of the brain that we were trying to model with the computers in the cortex, uh, but it was happening in these deeper, older regions of the brain that were the home of memory, emotion, and attention. And I thought, okay, memory, emotion, and attention. Well, memory and attention are important. I don't want to touch emotion. I'm a woman in science and engineering, and what a great way to throw away my career dealing with that topic. So I tried to learn a whole lot more about these regions of the brain and how they influence perception. And as I did, I kept bumping into this incredibly important role emotion was playing in shaping what mattered to us and what we chose to look at and what action we selected next and our very word choice. And pretty much everything that mattered was influenced by it. And yet nobody in AI or you know engineering was, was touching it as far as I could tell. Uh, and the more I realized how important it was, the more I thought, oh, golly, I got to get somebody to work on this, um, not me. <laughs> and I started talking to guys, trying to get them to do it, and nobody would do it. And why was it, why were you interested in synesthesia, which for people who don't know is the ways in which, uh, as I understand it, the senses can bleed into each other. So you hear things in colors or, you know, when you hear like words have a smell to you. Like what, what was it that you were trying to understand about synesthesia and how did that relate to computers? Because that seems to me like a weird glitch in the human processing complex. Uh, so, so why were you trying to replicate it or, or model it? Well, at the time I was just reading it because it was fun and I thought it was, just interesting to try to figure out how different senses connected in our brain. And I thought I might get insight into it by reading about it. But instead, what it led me to was that the emotion centers of the brain were uh, quite importantly engaged in things that we never thought of as emotion contributing to and engaged not in the stupid, idiotic, irrational ways that I thought emotion you know, interfered with rational thinking, but in fact, engaged in really helpful, smart, uh, important ways that when emotion was debilitated in some way in our brains, we actually became less rational and less able to handle flexible, intelligent decision-making. So it, it was really quite uh, an accident. I, I wasn't thinking I would learn anything really from it. I was really just reading it for fun and stumbled across how important emotion was in the process. Can you give me an example of the research? What are people finding that happens if our emotional centers are weakened or, or shut off in terms of the decision-making that people would not normally think of as emotional or even think of as hindered by our emotional response? Yeah, some of this work was done by folks like Antonio Damasio and a bunch of neuroscientists working with him who were finding that when certain regions of the brain were damaged and the patient might seem you know, really unemotional, you know, kind of like we think of as this super rational, cold Spock-like character, uh, that in fact, when it came to making a decision like, hey, should I call my friend or, or should I get out of bed, that if you try to solve that totally logically, you can go down an infinite list of possibilities of pros and cons uh, for hours and 
you know, after you've wasted a couple hours making a decision like that, you realize that's not very rational behavior. It's not something you ultimately decide with pure logic. It's not like just a bunch of logical steps we give a computer. So there's these little feelings, these um, what Damasio names somatic markers, that kind of guide you and say, okay, that line of reasoning is just really stupid. It's bad. I'm not going to go down that line of reasoning. Uh, here's a good line of reasoning, and you feel good about that. And as you go down it, you start to feel bad that you're taking so long, and pretty soon you just nip it in the bud and pick something. And all of those little meta-decisions of which items you're going to consider and how long you're going to consider and how much it matters to consider deeper versus just make a decision, that's really regulated by our feelings. Is what you're saying there that our emotions are acting as conveyors of our intuitions? that we have some sort of intuitive decision-making process happening, or if I'm sitting around getting like deciding whether or not to get out of bed and I begin thinking about how I should finish Love is Blind, I have an emotional <laughs> response to that, which is carrying some kind of other decision-making process and just saying, don't do that. Like you, and I feel shame or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is that the role? Is it, is it the, is it the emotions helping us make decisions or is it the emotions sending a signal for some other decision-making capacity? I think it's both. I think the emotions guide and shape and bias in a good way, uh, not the way it's often used as just a bad thing, our decision-making process itself as well as the content of it. Our intuitions are similar in the sense that they both kind of operate usually without our conscious awareness. You know, intuitions consist of a lot of things you've learned over time that's like cognitive knowledge and procedural knowledge and factual knowledge and so forth. And the emotions are a little bit more like the adverbs and the regulatory mechanisms that say, okay, you can have 10 minutes to think about that, but it's really not that important to think about it longer than that, right? And the role of the emotions is to kind of do that tacitly without you having to stop and set a timer. Although some people might want to raise their emotions uh, to a level where they're conscious of them and sometimes that can help you get through the day a lot better. Like, let's say you've just started working at home and you're not very disciplined and you might want to start paying attention to your little emotions that precede you getting distracted or off task and start to raise those subconscious or intuitive level emotions to a higher level where you're aware of them and you can uh, override them with your cognitive processes, reflective processes. What gets defined as an emotion here? Because something you're making me wonder is whether or not we have been taught to recognize only a subset of what appears here to be emotional processing. An example of that is that I find it unintuitive when you say that the emotions help you get back on track because my experience of when I feel like I'm thinking emotionally is when, for instance, I can't put down an obsessive thought loop that is about that is relating to something I'm anxious about. There's clearly a way that my anxiety is holding me on a particular set of thoughts. But it sounds to me like you're saying that when I actually do move on from something because I recognize I got to get things done that day or my son needs me or whatever whatever it might be, then maybe I am not understanding that as emotional. Maybe I'm just calling that higher cognition or pr productivity or whatever it might be. And so is, is part of what you found or part of what you're saying that we have not been taught to see the full spectrum of what our emotions are doing in our mental uh, models? Yeah, I think of emotion like weather. It, we always have weather. You know, whether it's a gorgeous day, which you might Think of like the emotion of joy or 
you know, a thunderstorm, which you might think of like the emotion of anger. We always have continuous changing barometric pressure, temperature, humidity, you know, all these precipitation, all these different things that one that the meteorologists can measure. And the weather is always happening. And we similarly have all these background emotions that are always happening. And they have changing components and values inside us involving signals going between different parts of our brain and between, even between a lot of the organs in our body. Our emotion system involves signaling uh, between you know, just about every part of our body when you start breaking out the components of the autonomic nervous system. And when you have an emotion like anxiety that's causing you to have that, that loop of thinking, that in a sense is that emotion uh, facilitating that set of looping mechanisms, if you will. Now, another emotion could come along. You know, your spouse could say, hey, get over here, right? And you suddenly have another emotion of, well, I value my relationship with my spouse more than my looping cognitive thoughts right now. And so you pop out of that loop and change your behavior, change your action, uh, maybe change what you were thinking. So these um, affective or emotional, emotion-like mechanisms can regulate or change or modify or modulate or bias our thinking in ways that can be challenging, like if you get stuck in a loop, um, or that can be very beneficial, like when a social relationship is recognized as more important and pops you into a better behavior. So I think one way of hearing this is that emotions are playing a hack role in our brains where Maybe we're bad at making decisions, and so we have these little patches where if I'm on the wrong track or something in me thinks I'm on the wrong track, I get this feeling of bad or shame or impatience or whatever it might be and vice versa. And that as we move to building minds that are have clearer rules and are not and are designed consciously as opposed to by evolution and, and so on, you wouldn't want to bring that along. This is the kind of thing you're trying to leave behind. So what led you to say that this is something that people creating artificial intelligence and thinking about computation need to be looking at as opposed to something that, oh, thank God, we can finally leave behind this completely inefficient emotional processing patch. <laughs> yeah. When we give machines decision-making abilities, they have a lot of the same problems. If we just give them logical computer rules and stuff, they're very stupid. They're rigid. They're inflexible. They can't adapt to unpredictable circumstances, unpredictable perceptual inputs coming their way. So we see that both kinds of processing, that deliberative slow processing and that kind of quick and dirty processing and that guided by some other mechanisms, we'll just call them affective mechanisms right now, they're all valuable parts of building an intelligent decision-making system. And in balance, they're particularly intelligent, right? We, we don't want just the logical. We don't want just the emotional. So in 1995, you wrote this groundbreaking paper uh, that launched this field of effective computing. I know we've talked about some of the pieces of it, but can you, in a big picture way, just summarize the argument you made there? Uh, it's been a while, but <laughs> yeah. So in, in 1995, I was starting to realize that AI was being built without any emotion and the kinds of AI I thought we were going to get were going to be rigid and inflexible and not very pleasant for people to interact with, and a whole lot of other problems. And the more I learned about how emotion in the human brain helps us be more flexible and more rational and more intelligent, 
and make better decisions, um, see the world more clearly, understand people better, interact with people better. I realized that all these different things I'd been going to talks in the AI lab on uh, would probably all be better if they had knowledge of how affect works and might incorporate some of those mechanisms in it. Being in the media lab where we were encouraged to take risks uh, with quite a bit of trepidation, I wrote down all of my thoughts at the time into a paper or at least a, as many of them as I thought somebody could suffer to read and tried to get it published. Uh, and that was the first paper on affective computing. One thing that strikes me in that is, so I live in the, the Bay Area now and I just moved here uh, about a bit over a year ago. And over the past couple of years, I've talked to a lot of the people who are building AI, and I've gotten a better sense of the, the intellectual culture in Silicon Valley. And something that is very striking to me about it is how much it dislikes emotion, how much it sees emotion as a weakness, how much emphasis there is on a performance of unemotional rationality. Uh, you can win arguments by seeming to be less bothered by the other person. Uh, people, people really, they really highly rate the both the the reality and the calculation of a sort of engineering mindset and capacity and the idea that somebody would be emotional in an argument or that emotion would carry much information is pretty dismissed so is this a way in which ai is maybe and the way ai has been being built for for some time now is maybe reflecting personality quirks or cultural biases of the people who were attracted to that field yeah, and we've we've had a not very diverse group of people building the first AIs. I think that's part of it. I mean, all those criticisms of emotion, I had them too at the time. That's why I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to be associated with it. You know, I was a woman in engineering, used to being one female in a room of 50 or more guys, and anything emotional was not welcome. And so I had also become pretty unemotional to the point where one of my friends was like laughing at me hysterically when she saw I was writing something about emotion. She goes, you, <laughs> you're the most unemotional person there is. How do you know anything about emotion? And I was like, really, you have to say that to me. But it was it was a challenge when Nicholas Negroponte and I wrote the first piece on affective computing and part of his column for Wired magazine at the time, we got hate mail from people around the world who were saying, you guys, you're at MIT. You don't know anything about emotion. or And that was one side of it. And the other side of it was from people like us who are saying, why are you wasting your time on emotion? That's the last thing we want in machines. It's just noise. It's stupid. Uh, and I had this delight, you know, about five years later when those same people were coming up to me asking me for my data because they'd started working on it too. They saw then how important it was. But at the time, yeah, people thought I was off my rocker. To, to hold on that critique for a minute, something that has always struck me about the AI conversation, and you see it in a very clarified form when you get into the AI will kill us all, AI's existential risk conversation, but, but you see it elsewhere too, is the idea that both to get things done and when you can't get things done, the primary constraint is a kind of intellectual horsepower. And what's always struck me as odd about that is I, I come from the politics world, and that's what I primarily cover, and I can tell you that it just is not the case that it is the very smartest people who rise to the top of politics. And that's also true in business, and it's true in a lot of places. And, and something I've always argued back with less language than I've, I've had since looking into your work is that in order to get other people to do things, in order to deal with the real resource constraints of, of, of acting upon the world, you need other things, a high amount of emotional intelligence, uh, the capacity to project leadership, to communicate clearly. And the way in which 
a lot of the conversation seems to take just engineering horsepower as a constraint as opposed to what often seems to me to be the constraint in people's lives and certainly having run an organization and seen other people do it in big organizations, which is the ability to lead emotionally complicated creatures and get them to do what they need to do or what you want them to do or what the organization needs everybody to do is really undervalued. That if you're thinking about what kind of constraints on the world you want to solve by creating smarter machines, that we may not be thinking about the the right ones when we're defining the decisions that need to get made or the obstacles that keep them from getting made. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, I don't think emotional intelligence is anywhere near as undervalued now as it was back when I wrote that paper. Uh, since then, there have been lots of books. I mean, you know, like Dan Goleman came out with his blockbuster emotional intelligence that just led to really a revolution, you know, in the schools, especially in education. And then it spread into management and so forth, where people started to realize exactly what you said, that the people who rise to the top aren't those with the best math or verbal SAT or, you know, the best subject tests in some technical area, but they're the people who understand people and the people that people feel inspired by to become better people and to rise above their own kind of petty obsession with their career or whatever is you know, they're struggling with at that moment and feel hope and feel that there's something greater to aspire to. And that also enables them to work together, even when people are really different and they don't naturally click. Uh, and those people with the emotional intelligence really help them uh, rise above all that stuff. Uh, they make great leaders and they make great collaborators. So we're 25 years past that initial paper. How would you rate the advances we've seen in affective computing. I think people hear a lot about the advances in strategic computing and, you know, computers beating StarCraft or World of Warcraft and Go and chess. But I think we hear less about this other side. So what impresses you and what um, disappoints you in terms of the progress that has been made? Well, I think there's been huge progress. Um, and I'm kind of glad we're not hearing about it like a Go champion or, or something like that. And here's why. If affect is the center of attention, if affect is the focus, then it's probably out of balance. It's probably something gone emotional, run amok. And when affect calls attention to itself, it's usually not good. Um, affect is most successful when you don't notice it, when it's helping gently make everything seem more pleasant and smoother and like everything's everyone's getting along and you just find this interaction like feels smooth that's when affect is really done right. If instead you see the affect, you see the emotion, then it's exactly that stereotype of, oh my gosh, it's emotional, right? Yuck, I don't want that. Uh, and so, you know, for it to really succeed, it kind of also has to not be noticeable. That's such an interesting point that when we say somebody is emotional, we don't mean they're good at emotions. <laughs> right. We mean that their emotions are out of balance. I've never thought of it that way. But yeah. but but that's a, a useful way of conceptualizing it, that this works best. When it works best, it is balanced. Yes. And so when does it work best? When 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 do you know? I, I take your point that you don't see it that clearly when it is, but what do you think are the hallmarks of either a person or program with high effective capacity? Yeah. Let's say you're having an interaction online with a person or a chatbot, uh, I'll think of like a computer service person, and something goes wrong. You know, there was a fly in your salad on the plane, or they canceled your 
flight or something negative happen. What you want is really two things at that moment. You want, number one, to be understood. You want them to know that you were frustrated that they caused you a problem and they've inconvenienced you. And you want them to acknowledge that. And only after that do you really want them to kind of fix it and do something about it, right? If they simply, if you walk in there and you're really frustrated and all they say is, well, well, here's a salad without a fly, right? You're kind of like, okay, we fixed my problem, but you haven't fixed my emotion, right? And people need empathy. They need a little active listening, empathy, sympathy sometimes. Uh, They don't need a gushy emotional machine, but they need a very subtle acknowledgement that, wow, that's terrible. You know, sorry that happened. I know I can't undo this terrible thing, but here, let's let's see if this at least can help us move forward, right? Something that says, look, that was rotten and maybe apologizes and then also helps fix it afterwards. But first you address the emotions. Uh, So we have built software that can help do that or that can help people do that. I'm very big on human-assisted technology because I I've started to think more and more that just trying to get the human out of the loop is unwise. Well, I want to put a pin on that and come back to it. But but before we do, I want to have you talk about a counterexample, which is Clippy, who I think you have a very good, the the old Microsoft helper, <laughs> yeah. who I think you have a very good discussion of, which I think also clarifies what it is like when a computer does not have strong emotional intelligence. Yeah, here's an, here's an example. You know, Imagine that you're in wherever the places you go to hide when you have a really important project to do, okay? You go hide in an office or someplace where people don't find you and your head's down, you're working hard, you're trying your very best to make your deadline. And all of a sudden, this person barges in, starts winking and smiling and doing a little happy dance in front of you. uh, And you kind of look up at them maybe with like a look of not happiness on your face. Uh, And what do they do? Well, they smile and wink again and <laughs> offer you help. And you're sort of looking at them like, please, not now, go away. Um, and what do they do? They do another little happy dance and you're ready to like say, never come back to my office again, right? Go you know, shoot them. There's a reason why Clippy, uh, you know, was found on the web, you know, hanging by a noose and people admitted to shooting uh, a gun actually through their laptop screens at Clippy. When Clippy went away, he got a standing ovation. Uh, Bill Gates got a standing ovation for saying Clippy was going away. And part of it, I think, was because Clippy was just like that idiot I described that shows up when you're miserable and smiles and is happy. Uh, And that is not intelligent, right? If I show up, smile, and happy to see you, and I see you are not happy, then immediately an emotionally intelligent person would stop smiling and stop looking happy and would start looking concerned. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money, how to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might want to check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. 
Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb, arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. You said a moment ago that you had come to believe it's unwise to try to take human beings out of the loop. Obviously, there's a lot of work on general intelligence AI that would be able to be quite autonomous. So so what has that progression been like for you? Did you originally want to work on more general intelligence, artificial computing? And if that changed, what changed it? Yeah, great question. Yeah. Originally, you know, as a as a young engineer, I was inspired by the general intelligence AI idea and just kind of like Everest, it's there, you want to climb it, right? It's a goal. We wanted to see if we could reach it. As I've worked in more sensitive and difficult and challenging areas, like trying to use AI to help people with mental health or use AI to help people with epilepsy or customer service, I've learned that getting the same empathetic statement or the same input from a machine as from a person are two different things. And even though, you know, the text is identical and you know, the things we can measure overtly about the interaction are identical. The feelings, the beliefs, the background are different. When somebody is taking time to compose an empathetic response to you, whether verbally or in writing, they're showing a kind of human respect and treating you as if you have more dignity. And while we can automate some of that and we can support some of it for a little while, we humans crave something deeper and we know the difference and we appreciate the difference. And I think we have to recognize that that's not likely to change. Should we want it to change? I mean, if one could create an AI that was so good at reading us that you almost did not care that it was robotic, would that be better? Or would there, putting aside the customer service experience, is there just something dangerous or otherwise un? wanted about taking humans out of the equation entirely. Because it does seem to me that there is a fantasy of replacement here, that maybe we can replace ourselves with something better and more effective, and then other people find that on some moral or ethical or spiritual level a little concerning. 
Yeah. You know, I share some of the fantasy, right? Because I'm a builder and a creator and I like to dream and I, I have all these ideas for how I could build a conscious machine. I think I could do so much better than what anybody else has done. And then I find myself pulling back a little bit because there's also this opportunity cost, right? There's, okay, I can build this kind of thing that would be amazing on the late night show or something. But really, like, what good is going to come of this? Right. And meanwhile, there's all these other really horrible, difficult, challenging human needs in the world. And why am I putting all of my time and energy towards something that's going to be, you know, just kind of a shiny object that will, you know, just kind of amaze people with a demo when, in fact, I could be putting that same energy towards solving some really incredibly hard and important problems that make a lot of people's lives better. And right now, I don't see how the consciousness ideas I have are really going to make people's lives a lot better. So I wrestle with it because it's it's fun. You know, I like to build crazy things. But I have found personally when I build really hard things to build that also make people's lives a lot better, it's even more profoundly rewarding. And I mean much more. I'm not talking like 10% more. I'm talking, you know, thousands of times more rewarding. What's something you've built that has had that feeling to it, just so people have a sense of the kinds of tangible products that are possible here? Well, let's see. One of them I'm wearing right now, it's a smartwatch that is running AI in it continuously. The company's name is Empatica, uh, like empathic. In fact, it's the Italian word for empathic. And Empatica makes this smartwatch called Embrace, like a hug. And the AI in this watch is continuously monitoring one of the key components of emotion, the arousal, sympathetic nervous system arousal response that goes up when you're stressed and tends to go down nicely when you're really chill. It can change with some other things too. It's quite context dependent how we interpret it. It's also measuring motion and temperature. And it's processing that using the AI machine learning to do a lot of things. The one thing that is currently FDA cleared with the medical claim is that it is detecting generalized tonic-clonic seizures, or what's called a grand mal seizure. Those are the most dangerous kind. And unbeknownst to me, when we accidentally discovered while measuring stress that we could pick up signals related to seizures, I uh, learned that this is the number two cause after stroke of years of potential life loss, people dying in the moments after a seizure, usually from stopping breathing a thing called Sudden Unexpected Death in Epilepsy or Suit Up. I've now done a TED Talk on this. If you look for my name and TED, you'll see the story of us accidentally discovering that our stress monitor was finding data involved in these dangerous seizures. And also now people, when they wear this AI and it monitors and it detects that and it calls a friend, a caregiver, to come and be there for you in these moments afterwards, in not all cases, but in many cases, it looks like they could actually save your life uh, by simply flipping you over or providing some minor first aid. They could restore your breathing. That's remarkable. Um, what are you said that the thing that it is FDA approved to do? I'm curious. You said it's doing a lot of things. What are some other things that it is doing or trying to do? Well, right now, the only thing I can claim product wise is the FDA clearance. So be a little careful here. Let me switch over to my MIT hat. I uh, full disclosure, I'm a chief scientist and co-founder of Empatica and a shareholder over there. Uh, so now let me back to my MIT hat. 
There we are using this uh, Embrace wristwatch and another smartwatch made by Empatica, the E4, uh, to col- and we use a lot of other devices too, to collect continuous data of what's going on related to your stress levels, your physical activity, your sleep behavior, your social interaction, other kind of physiological changes that relate to things that may have to do with you, uh, um, you know, impacting your focus of attention and other things that matter in day-to-day life uh, with various medical conditions. Actually, right now, to all of our COVID-worried people, uh, we are in a big influenza study with Columbia University that HHS has funded. And this grew out of some accidental findings when we were trying to improve the emotion recognition and we were matching the, we realized the emotion interacts with whether you're healthy or sick and your stress level. So if we want to forecast your mood better tomorrow, it would help if we also knew if you were healthy or sick and stressed or calm. So we built separate detectors for these, then built a machine learning system that leveraged what was going on across all of them to do better with each of them. And we wound up kind of, to my surprise, kind of accidentally building a pretty good predictor of whether you were sick tomorrow or not. And so we showed that data to HHS and Columbia, and now we're part of their big influenza study to try to see if people are likely to get sick tomorrow. And this is now going on with the coronavirus too. So we'll be you know, monitoring carefully to see if we can see anything that gives early indications of changes in your body uh, that might even precede the usual symptoms. Let me ask you where this kind of research could go. And I want to think about how to frame this correctly. So I am very sensitive to other people's emotional states. Um, oh, nice. In some ways, too sensitive. Uh, I have trouble. Do, I, do you catch I was, emotions contagiously? I catch emotions very contagiously. Yep. Now, the upside of it is I'm very fast to see where people are. And the downside of it is I can't vent what I'm feeling from them effectively. Like it comes in and I absorb and reflect it, which is can be bad if your partner's having a bad day and now all of a sudden you're having a bad day <laughs> because uh, you can't put it down. But one thing that can be frustrating for me is that um, I feel it's so easy to see other people's emotions and often mine are harder for people to see. And so I'll have this feeling that, you know, well, I'm there for you, but you're not. And so something that is created in me over time is that the the wish that it would be easier for people to be emotionally transparent with each other, both sometimes I would prefer to, to to know where other people are. Like, for instance, I can't do it as effectively not being in a room with you. So I've thought about in these podcasts asking people to tell me before we start, like, where are they emotionally? But it's actually hard to track where people are emotionally during the conversation. And sometimes it's really important. It's like important for me to know, have I put you into a position where you're feeling stressed and defensive or are we just like getting into the conversation? So I have a couple questions related to this, but, but let me start with this one, which is on the one hand, I could see. You know, it's very easy to imagine partners having these little watches for each other and having a sense of where the other person's emotional state is. And on the one hand, that'd be great because maybe it's important for me to know if my partner is stressed. And on the other hand, maybe that borders into very creepy emotional surveillance territory, particularly if it becomes a, a corporate thing or that data is sold. So is it is more emotional transparency good? Like, should we want a future, assuming these technologies can work, where it's much easier for us to see with more reliability where the people around us are on the emotional spectrum? Or is that just too weird? No, it's not too weird. It's it's very context dependent, though. You're reminding me of years ago when I was just working on general AI stuff. My boss, the director of the Media Lab at the time, came by and said, hey, Roz, when are you going to do something useful? <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? Like, just building general AI is not useful. And I, I was like, what do you want? And he said, 
he didn't see giving machines, you know, emotion recognition abilities uh, was that useful. Um, and then he said, well, actually, he said, what would be really useful would be if you could give me the mood ring that tells me my wife's mood before I go home. And, and I thought, oh, dear, you know, I, I don't know, like if she knows that you have the mood, then maybe she's going to expect you to show up with flowers that night or, you know, it's going to change the expectations around that communication as well. And how, how do you know that the mood she's sending you is sincere? You know, suppose she puts in, you know, the mood she wants to show and, you know, it just opens up all these different questions. Well, anyhow, at the time I dismissed it because I thought, you know, mood rings were stupid temperature sensors and we weren't anywhere near close to detecting mood back then. Now, actually, we can do it. And not with a ring, but with a combination of your smartphone and a wrist-worn sensor. And actually, I should contextualize this. We have done it with college students predicting the mood the next day, not the mood at the moment. And that's still a very limited group of people. So, uh, Wait, you know. what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hold on. You can predict people's moods the next day? Predictive mood rings? We are predicting their positive, negative mood and high-low stress tomorrow and some days into the future, in some cases, using data from today and other data we've learned about college students over time. We've done this now with many thousands of day, many tens of thousands of days of data and hundreds of college students. Uh, caveat is these are all New England college students right now, and it may not generalize to other people. We need more data first. What kind of data are you using? What is being fed into that algorithm? This uh, data is data from the wrist watch, the autonomic stress data, the movement data, the temperature, the physical activity, uh, your patterns over 24 hours. It looks at a whole bunch of information we can sense about your physiology and uh, rhythms in your sleep. We also take data from your smartphone, which can be super important for some college students who social life is often expressed through texting. Uh, less usually through calling for the college students and other apps they might be using on the phone. All of this, of course, with their prior informed consent and clear explanations up front of what the data are and how they're going to be used. What data has the strongest correlate to me having a being in a bad mood tomorrow, assuming I was a New England college student? You know, we all kind of think so much science and psychology has been done with correlations and isolating a simple variable and saying whether it's correlated or not with mood tomorrow. And what we find is that it's not that simple. So, for example, for some people, positive, you know, like a lot of social interaction the night before is one of the features that the machine learning AI algorithm picks as really significantly associated with tomorrow's high positive mood. Uh, but for some other people, it's the exact opposite. And it may have to do with who they're interacting with. And by the way, um, for listeners who are savvy about machine learning, who are out there worried about us overfitting and all, we have rigorously trained on data that's completely separate from our test data. This is peer-reviewed, published, uh, and so forth. Because I'm sure people out there are skeptical. I was very skeptical the first time my students started showing me some of the results. We have dug through this inside out. We've even open sourced the code and put it online. So this uh, this is real. And what we're seeing is it's usually a complex combination of things. In fact, it's important to do machine learning that takes a collection of variables, not just one variable. So for example, usually good sleep helps with your mood the next day, and usually bad sleep helps with a bad, you know, a less good mood the next day. Um, but it's not the only factor, right? You could have bad sleep and amazing social interaction and be in a good mood the next day. You could have uh, 
great sleep and physical pain or some other really bad news in your life or other things going on, you know, and be in a really bad mood. So while sleep is usually associated, and in fact, we found that regular sleep made more difference among the college students than the sleep duration, where the sleep duration wasn't varying that significantly on average. You know, if you look at people like who slept six and a half or less hours versus people who slept seven and a half or more, the difference wasn't huge. But the people who had really regular sleep tended to have much better, much lower stress, much better mental health. We also measure a whole bunch of mental health variables than people who yanked their sleep timing all over the place, you know, went to bed early one night, late the next night, short sleep, long sleep. But the average sleep was the same. They had the same average sleep, but irregular sleep, they tended to be much less mentally healthy. You mentioned a minute ago that one of the things was pulling in there wasn't just the measurement of uh, autonomic processes, but uh, what was happening on the smartphone, texting, social media, etc. I'm curious what you see there in general. Does a lot of smartphone usage predict something? Does a lot of social media usage in particular predict anything? Are there any lessons there for for, for those of us who uh, are, are concerned about our own usage? Yeah. Again, it's not that simple. It's not like just more is worse or less is better. You know, within subgroups, there tended to be some regular patterns. So, for example, the people who are texting from roughly, I'll say like 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. tended to have worse mental health. Now, again, this is in a group of college students who are kind of all on the same schedule. Okay, so if somebody's working the night shift, this would not apply to them. Uh, But for the students who, by and large, had, you know, were up sometime between 9 and 10 in the morning off to classes, this um, behavior during those hours of the nights usually was associated with worse stress the next day, worse mood the next day, and in general, worse mental health. Again, it sort of had to do with um, aligning sleep with a regular schedule, we think, in that case. The same time people kind of texting like at the end of the day before the evening and some late in the night, those tended to be associated with happier, healthier social interactions and people who are connected to others and doing well. So, you know, I I think we have to be careful to not look for simple correlations between one behavior and one outcome. The reality is a lot of things we're doing combined, just like, you know, ingredients, you, you can have the exact same ingredients, you know, go into, you know, a cake as into a pastry, as into uh, some cream pie, right? And they come out completely different depending how you combine them. So we really have to look very carefully at uh, a lot more than just, you know, how much, how many hours people are spending on the phone. Are you familiar with uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work on emotion? Yes, yes. So I had her on the podcast a while back. And one of the things that, that she made a point of saying was that emotional expression varies sharply from culture to culture. It is much harder for people often to sense in others than they think it is. Um, they We misread people's facial expressions all the time. And something that we were talking about is we often misread our own emotional expressions. I mean, I've talked before on the podcast, including with her, about thinking I was tired when I was stressed or that I was stressed when I was agitated, that some sometimes our, our level of emotional granularity about ourselves is quite off. So I'm curious, as you're trying to teach computers or, or or create a sense of what data leads to what emotional state, what are you feeding into it and what level of granularity are you trying to, to get out of it? Um, how consistent is the data human beings can offer on this um, such that you can get good results? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. And 
One one of the things Lisa has been pointing out too, which you know we actually really knew from day one, but some people haven't communicated this quite as accurately as they should, uh, is that you know just because you're smiling doesn't mean you're happy. In fact, we've measured in ninety percent of cases when people are frustrated, they smile the quote unquote true smile of happiness with both their eyes and their mouth, and the the dynamics of it are a little bit different, and the context is definitely different. So in that context, you know they're not happy, right? Even though you see that smile. But when you take that smile out of context, it could mean two entirely opposite things. So, you you know, it's complicated. Um, there's a reason emotional intelligence is hard. And one reason is because there are many mappings and they're context dependent and there are cultural influences. And there are also a lot of individual differences. I've worked a lot with people on the autism spectrum who may express things very differently. And we need to take time to understand sometimes and get them to reflect on what they're doing, which can be very hard, you know, because some people also don't have very good internal awareness of what they're feeling. And so there's a name for that called alexithymia, where you may not be able to really put words or awareness to your changing emotional states, sort of like weather forecasting long before they had the ability to measure temperature and precipitation and wind and humidity. And, you know, that was just kind of these hand wavy explanations of what was going on. And sometimes they weren't very helpful and they certainly weren't very good at forecasting. So, as we get more precise today with what we're measuring, we are uh, sometimes still struggling how to put the right words with it. But we can give people that data. We can enable them to see, like, do you feel what that is right now? That that That's your sympathetic nervous system response, skin conductance going up. And you can, with biofeedback, learn how that changes and start to gain better self-awareness. And I I hope and dream that maybe we could help reduce some of that alexithymia, some of that uh, state of not really knowing what you feel or thinking you feel one thing, but in fact, you're misunderstanding what's changing in your body. How concerned are you that this becomes a surveillance tool? You mentioned work you've done uh, on products that would help that people understand what autistic folks are feeling. And my saying is one of the companies you were involved in there ended up going in a direction of more uh, corporate, you know, using this data to help inform corporate decisions. And you can imagine if that kind of thing scales up a, a world in which we are being tracked by our employers or, or, or other things. So, you know, when these technologies begin, there's a lot of ideas of the way they can be put to good. And then over time, capitalism gets hold and they become something bigger than that. So is this something you worry about? Is it something you think other people should worry about? Yeah, definitely. I, In fact, one of the comments people made when I wrote my first book, Affective Computing, was why did you put this chapter in there on potential concerns? You know, chapter four. I mean, shouldn't you wait until the this field exists before you shoot it down? <laughs> and I said, well, because, you know, I'm worried. There are ways that this stuff, if we don't think about this up front and we don't build it carefully, it could be used in ways I don't want to see it used. So here's some good ways it could be used. Here's some, you know, scary, horrible ways it could be used. And let's try to design things up front so that the good ways are really easy to do and the bad ways are either impossible or we put a lot of friction in the way uh, or maybe we need regulations. And right now I think actually we need regulations. I think we're overdue for some. So yeah, there's a lot of concerns. I am staunchly opt-in and fully informed consent, which just doesn't happen. I mean, people have people clicking these end-user license agreements every time you download an app. People don't read them. They're legalese. We don't get to ask questions. We're not fully informed, and we're really not fully consented. And I think that has to change.
Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. We've been talking a lot so far about ways that, as I understand it, the machine learning can be used to train on human data to make humans um, more legible to themselves or others. But we've talked, uh, we've glancingly talked about general AI and and one of the ideas in, in effective computing being that if we're going to create conscious or even just capable machines, they don't have to be conscious. They have to be able to understand our emotions too. And I'm curious about the difference there. Uh, I can I can imagine what it means to try to make humans legible to themselves, but what are the different challenges in making humans legible to computers? Well, we have to understand anything we're going to program in a computer, we have to understand it first. And we don't really understand ourselves completely. We, we don't really understand human emotion. The emotion theorists still don't even agree on a definition of emotion. When I wrote Affective Computing, there were more than 100 definitions out there. And I think there's even more now. They're, they're not getting together on it. The theorists just go at each other's throats. There, there's really no agreement what it is. And there's been very little rigorous measurement. There's been a lot of sort of psychology research where people sit around and think about it, and come up with kind of Gedanken experiments and arguments and very little objective measurement of what's going on inside the brain and the body. So as an engineer, I came to this pretty frustrated. Like, you know, I want objective, reliable, repeatable measurements. I don't like this self-reported emotion stuff that they're building theories on, uh, in part because I work with engineers who like things objective, reliable, repeatable, and I am an engineer, um, but also because the whole literature around emotion was just full of you know, inconsistencies and things that, you know, it would be like trying to build a house on sand if you worked with all those different uh, descriptions out there. I want to build a house on a solid foundation. So I set about starting out uh, trying to get objective measurement of what was going on with emotion. And there weren't tools to do that with. So we had to build some of our own tools. And, you know, that's what led to a lot of our wearable sensors. And now we're also partnering with uh, top neurosurgeons who aren't limited to measuring the outside of the head, the brain activity with EEG on your scalp, electrodes in your hair, 
but they can open up the scalp, they can open up the skull, they can go deep into the regions of the brain where the emotions are happening and read out what's going on there. And with the partnerships with amazing people, you know, many of whom have epilepsy or other really horrible diseases, um, and they're such wonderful people and they're willing to, you know, contribute their brain activity to this research. Um, and so we're working with them now and we're reading out more what's going on with emotional states and other important changes in our cognitive and behavioral processing. Uh, and we're trying to really learn what's actually going on. Um, and then once we can really understand what's going on with people, uh, you know, then we will be better informed about, about what it makes sense to build. I'm sure I will do this some violence in the recounting of it. But, but as I understand uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work on this, her view is that emotions are a form of predictive modeling off of interoception, which is to say, you know, what we perceive through our different senses, both internal and external, and that the same sense data can be emotionally interpreted in many different ways, depending on the emotional concepts you have at hand, depending on the culture you're in. Um, we talked when when she was on the show about the ways in which at one time in my life, I might have perceived uh, one set of senses, one set of sense data as anticipation, um, excitement. And then at another point, having been through some harder things and having conceived myself then as a more anxious person, I would take the same thing and think of it as anxious and I'd want to avoid it and, you know, trying to negotiate the, the tension between those two models. So given that emotions or if you believe or agree that emotions on some level reflect social construction, reflect what we are able to put onto the data we're perceiving, then how does kind of getting in people's heads or getting some of this physical data help? Because you still need that that mediating layer of, well, what are we gonna, what are we gonna make out of it, given that we could interpret it reasonably in different ways? Yeah, Lisa has a pretty convoluted construction there. Let's just say that if you if you accidentally poke Lisa with a pen, she'll still yelp. <laughs> sure. You know, we can certainly construct some things deliberatively. And Lisa's an emotion theorist, and she's trying to, like most emotion theorists, trying to not unify, but put yet another dot on the landscape. Uh, and I don't honestly find that that helpful. What I find much more helpful is to look at where emotions are causing problems to people in daily life. And look, if it's just some social construction, you know, well, okay, you can address that through some social deconstruction, right? But there's some other emotions that are much deeper and more complex than that, that are, you know, affecting and biasing our behavior in ways that we're not even aware of. And there's no cognitive social construction going on when they're just affecting uh, that you're they're causing your heart to just beat too fast sometimes or causing you to sweat profusely or contributing as one of many factors to contributing a seizure or, you know, a whole lot of other ways. The emotion mechanisms, uh, again, like weather mechanisms in the background, are constantly in the background doing things. So while the social construction is a part of it, it's not the it's not what it is. It's just another sort of spin on the surface. Let, let me ask you about the flip side of this then, which is I'm always struck and in some cases a little bit heartbroken by the research or the product development that you'll see come out of either very lonesome societies or subgroups that are being served that are very lonely. So there are all these stories. You see a lot of them out of Japan, but not only, where um, older people who are quite isolated will become very attached to um, different kinds of, you know, 
semi-robotic like plush animals or puppies that are just able to do a very basic kind of emotional call and response, right? That they'll sort of purr when you pet them or, and it makes me wonder, um, given how lonely so many people are and people's fear of judgment and social anxiety, whether you really need unbelievably high levels of complexity to create forms of companions that can be quite useful to people. I mean, many people like their dogs a lot better than they like other humans because their dogs in some ways are emotionally simpler, they're more giving, um, et cetera. So I'm curious if you've done work or if you have thoughts in that area as we become an aging society, you know, are we going to be able to create more artificial companionship um, even well before we can create anything like AGI? We we have, uh, with Cynthia Brazil at the Media Lab, been working on social robots that are companions. Uh, but we've also been very careful to try to not mislead people into thinking that they can do more than they can. And that has caused us to build things that look much more like cute little critters than like people. And that's deliberate. That's not a limitation of our imaginations or of our capabilities. It's a recognition that we want to kind of under-promise and over-deliver. Uh, we don't want to mislead and present people with something that's really a sham. So that I, I think the there's a lot of reasons to do social robots. However, the issue of elderly and loneliness and companionship, I think, is not going to be solved by social robots, even though we can mass produce them and, you know, they may play a role and they may help. If I could say anything to your listeners right now, it's set aside your technology, grab, if you can make cookies, if you can't, store-bought cookies, you know, something healthy, flowers, anything, and go knock on your neighbor's door. I know that may feel totally awkward for people who can't even knock on their roommate's door uh, without texting them first. But older folks, they're probably not texting. <laughs> you can knock on their door. You can call them. And just say hi and check in on them. And you can even keep the six-foot social distance with COVID-19 right now, right? But just reach out and let them know you care. And even a 30-minute visit uh, once a month, you know, bare minimum, can make a profound difference in their life. And in fact, you will probably find it an enormous mood boost, too. So real um, human interaction, I think, is irreplaceable, even by the most brilliant social robots that we've built or that we will build in the generations to come. How has doing this work changed the way you see your own emotions or track your own emotional state and, and how you manage it? I mean, thinking about emotion for years, I imagine, gives you some some sense of it that the rest of us don't have. Has it changed the way you go about your day or? yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I went from it's I've evolved enormously on how I think about emotions. In the beginning, I thought they were just something to be avoided. And now I see how valuable and important and rich and engaging and intelligent and useful emotions are. I see them as like if if you don't see them and you don't understand them, you need to learn about them because these are the really important factors in things that matter for connecting people, for mental health, for well-being, for success in jobs and academia, for handling tough challenges. If you really want to conquer some big problem, you know, the African saying, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. If you want to go far and go together, you're going to need to understand emotions, yourselves and yourself and, and those of others. So, for me, it has been an incredible eye-opener as to how important emotion is. I've also, by wearing sensors and learning about myself, I've 
gotten this really keen awareness of my own skin conductance changing, my own heart rate changing, my own stress levels changing. It doesn't mean that I always notice it or pay attention like I should because I might still be consumed with something else. Uh, But when I stop and reflect on it, I have new levels of awareness that I never had before. Um, It's also caused me to change things in my life that I wasn't expecting. I mean, once I was wearing uh, sensors just to test them to see if we had gotten the electronics working right. I was wearing four of them, my ankles and wrists, getting ready to take my son to a day at Six Flags. And it was for his birthday. And the whole event had been canceled once before. So here we were on our attempt number two. And I thought, oh, gosh, I hope it doesn't fall through a second time. You know, a mom wants so badly to please her, her kid. And my son, you know, was all excited about going. And at the last minute, you know, one of his friend's moms call and he has to pull out and the kid's not feeling well. And then another one calls and is thinking they may not show up because some other people were coming in town. And I thought, oh, no, it's all going to fall through again. Um, and then at the last minute, it worked out and we were able to go. Meanwhile, I'm tracking my stress this whole day. And we get there and we ride this big, exciting ride that made me sick to my stomach. And then we start on these intense roller coasters, you know, the highest, fastest roller coaster in all of New England. And I love roller coasters. So I was really happy on these. Now, at the end of the day, I'm looking at my stress data. And my stress peaked at not only the ride that was um, incredibly uh, nauseating, but surprising. And, and I had these big peaks that resolved into really happiness kinds of signatures on the roller coaster rides. But what really surprised me was the biggest peak of the day uh, was not any of the extreme rides. Um, The biggest peak of the day was trying to get out the door in the morning. And I realized upon reflecting, you know, that not only do we all experience a lot of stress trying to get out the door with kids, but when somebody special to you in your life that you're planning something big for and you're afraid it's all going to fall through, that kind of emotion that triggers a really big signal It's not something we can easily reproduce in our lab studies. In most psychology lab studies, people are showing you like little emotional pictures and things, and you're sitting there as a human subject in these studies going, this doesn't really matter to me. You know, yeah, I know that makes, you know, it's smiling. It makes me happy. Beach scene, oh, that looks nice in the winter. Uh, You know, ugly, war scene, yuck, of course that's negative. You have these little bitty trivial emotions to these pictures and stimuli in the lab. Um, But when it's your kid, your loved one, something big that matters a lot to them and you, and it's fallen through and you're trying to make it happen again, and you're really hoping it's going to work, and it looks like it's going to fall through again. Those kinds of real-world emotions are huge, and they're even bigger than that biggest, fastest roller coaster's effect on you. Yeah, I think that's such a beautiful point. Um, I just came back recently from a book tour. Now it's not quite as recent, but uh, got it right right before all touring stopped. But I was struck on that where I had this book come out and it did well and it was on the bestseller list. Yeah, congratulations. And reviews and all these. Thank you. I really appreciate that. But in the same way that I just gave you that wrote, I really appreciate that. It didn't do much for me emotionally. Like it was stressful. It was cool seeing people in person. It was tiring doing the book tour. But the main thing that like regulated my days was when I called home, like did my wife and son seem happy? Like, were they like stressed? Were they happy with me? Were they? And it, it, you know, it's not a exactly a new insight, but I I think a lot about how much there is such an architecture in my life to keep me focused on my work. 
But I am often very wrong, at least in the way I construct my schedule on what's going to matter to me at the end of the week. It's not that my work doesn't matter. It's important to me. And I think it has value. And I think conversations like this are valuable. And, and hopefully people get things out of them. But in terms of what is going to manage my stress, um, things going great at work often just makes me a little bit more stressed out because there's more work to do. Whereas things going great versus poorly at home, I feel great when they're going great. And I feel quite poorly yeah. when they're going poorly. Yeah. And that isn't something that is always as it is obvious to say and it is sometimes hard to feel um in you know in your moment to moment because like you know my kiddo doesn't slack me and tell me i'm behind on something although he does have his own ways of telling me i'm behind on something and i don't know it, it's something that the inability sometimes to follow your own emotional signals to yourself is, is interesting i can imagine how having some independent data of that might make it a little even clearer yeah it's so great you're aware of that so many people aren't and they let their marriages fall apart or their relationships with their kids fall apart. And they don't intend to let those things happen. They just aren't pausing and thinking about what's most important in life. And too often we don't remember that, you know, at the end of this life, it's not that great computer software we wrote or that, you know, all those extra publications or those extra pages on our resume um, or that extra money in the bank. But it's the people that we love um, and who are there and sometimes they're at our funeral uh, that matter most. And while we don't necessarily have to spend the most hours of the day with them, we do need to remember who matter, who or what matters most in our life. And by keeping those priorities straight, you know, and letting them know too that, you know, your work is second to them, it really does promote better well-being and then, of course, you know, as bosses should be interested in this, too, not just because it's true and right and good and people feel better. Uh, but, you know, hey, when everything's good at home uh, and you're free to work, you probably work better than too, right? Whereas if you've got a problem at home, it's kind of hard to focus on your work. Yeah, I think that that is certainly my my experience of myself. Um, there's one other piece I want to ask you about but, but before we close out here, which is, I've been trying to explore AI on this show and and, and try to understand it a little bit better. Um, and something that has always struck me about it, maybe this came up in our earlier conversations here, is that how much people often conceptualize it as about being strong and building what will be strong and it's being built on behalf of the strong and you know, you're gonna have these super AIs and they're gonna be owned by Google and so on. And I've heard you say that you think the goal of AI technology, which I recognize can be different than what people are thinking of when they talk about AI, should be to empower the weak and help reduce inequality. And I've really not seen, it does not seem to me that the headline grabbing things that happen in AI have this dimension. So what would an AI agenda, a product agenda, you know, beyond the, the stuff we've talked about that you've yourself been doing look like? If we were really committed to building AI to empower the weak and help reduce inequality, what would that mean in terms of what we were studying and how we were setting up that industry that's different than what we're seeing now? I love that question. Thank you. Thank you for asking that. There's a lot more than I can I can say briefly here, but let, let me maybe just give an example that's inspired me recently. There's a, a new project at the Media Lab uh, called Kamala, and it was inspired by recognizing, you know, we do a lot of work with kids on the autism spectrum, and uh, usually when you go to get people for studies in autism, you go to get the people on the autism spectrum who are able to use some language, right? They can answer your questions. They can handle some of the surveys. They can lie in a scanner. And the people who are always left out of the studies are the kids, the adults who can't talk, 
who are sometimes called nonverbal or non-communicating, which is just wrong because, in fact, they are communicating. We just don't know how to understand them. And they're often um, dismissed as low intellectual ability or other negative things. Now, it turns out that many of these non-speaking people are actually, you know, well, there's quite a range of intellectual ability, including some incredible brilliance. And many of them might make a babbling sound or a squealing sound or some other uh, sound that, you know, the caregiver, chief caregiver, mom or dad or whoever, really, if they spend a lot of time with them, they get to know what that means. They know that that means they're happy or they know that that means they want food or they know that that sound means, uh uh-oh, they're like getting frustrated and they're about to have a meltdown and we don't want the meltdown to happen. So you definitely learn to recognize that pre-meltdown sound. However, these caregivers need a break every now and then. Uh, it's uh, intense. So they are always hiring babysitters and others. Uh, and a ba- new babysitter comes in and hasn't a clue how to read these sounds. Now, these sounds are not the same every time. So it's really hard to just build a pattern matching system to recognize these sounds. And there's not enough data to train deep learning or machine learning AI to really properly learn these sounds. So what we're doing now is we're taking the power of the AI trained on mass numbers of people with nonverbal paralinguistic other sounds like us going um or mm or just making all kinds of little background sounds or going uh-huh, uh, lots of this other stuff, and combining it with this little bit of data from these individuals and then trying to scale these individuals across cities and countries and see if we can build a, a little simple, comfortable, wearable translator that tells people what these individuals are trying to communicate when they make these sounds that aren't the typical words we're using. And we've already gotten some really exciting results with this. And this is the kind of project that I I love on a lot of levels. Uh, It's going to revolutionize the lives for these individuals, right? They're going to have a lot more people treat them as if they're using language, treat them as if they're intelligent, understand them, help prevent them from getting frustrated and having meltdowns, as opposed to waiting until they have a meltdown and saying, oh, you're just too difficult to work with. There's so many ways this super powerful AI could not just revolutionize how these individuals are treated, but revolutionize their learning opportunities. And we think, we don't know until we show it, but it could revolutionize the science of language development, of us understanding how language evolves within an individual who doesn't develop it in a typical way. Uh, We can learn more about what's going on in their brains at the same time with imaging and so forth. So we're very excited when the same incredible amount of intelligence and effort and power that could go into, you know, building yet another AI to play Go, you know, or Mario Kart or something, when instead all that brain power goes into just as hard of a problem, in fact, even harder in some levels, um, that is going to revolutionize the lives of members of our society who are usually just ignored. Yeah, I love that. Um, I know these are busy days for everybody, so I want to let you go. But uh, let me ask you the question then that we always used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to others? Well, the, the, this this uh, may cause you to want to delete my ending. But the book that I would recommend reading that uh, has you know most profoundly impacted me uh, is actually the best-selling book of all time. Uh, it's uh, It's the Bible. And I would recommend maybe starting with the uh, book of Proverbs, which is full of incredible wisdom. 
uh, and then maybe going on and reading books uh, like or sections like the Sermon on the Mount um, in the Gospels, uh, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or uh, my favorite book of all, which is the book of Philippians. Can I, can I ask why you said that that might make us delete the ending? Why why you why do you feel um, awkward about that? Well, I feel awkward about it because there was a time in my life, just like when I thought emotion was was something we didn't want. There was a time in my life when I thought anything that had anything to do with religion was something that we didn't want to. I was a pretty uh, avid atheist, and if anybody had suggested what I just suggested, I think I would have rolled my eyes and and deleted, uh, you know, what what they were telling me. Yeah, I understand. I, I had a I had a intense atheist period when I was younger. But even if you're an atheist, if you've not if you can't get something out of the Bible, you're I think it's a little bit like the way in which there actually is an intense connection between a lot of new atheist personality types and the real hatred of emotion and particularly like the performance of unemotionality that I think is interesting. But you got to be able to I mean, if you can't see that there is something in there that has been powerful for people, um, you know, that's a that's on you. And you know, people should read people should read the Bible, whether or not they believe in it. Yeah, I agree. And I originally read it as an atheist, just because it was the best selling book at all time. And I thought of myself as an intelligent person, and as an intelligent person, I should have read the best selling book of all time. It sounds to me um, like you've changed from being an atheist and was reading the Bible part of that. Did it? Did it make you into? Did it make you into somebody who has more theistic leanings? Uh, yeah, reluctantly it did at the time. I did not want to become somebody with more theistic leanings. But yes, um, I read through the whole Bible and I did start to change my beliefs and started to believe in God. Uh, and then later, much later through quite a bit more learning about it, because I, again, I was not somebody who wanted to be religious. Uh, I went from being just theistic to actually becoming a, a, a very sort of generic Christian. It's really interesting. I actually don't hear that that often, that I, I often hear that people who are believers will read the Bible and find that very profound, but it's rare for me to hear somebody read it and it, and it moved them. So that's a, that's a good recommendation for reading the Bible. It's a very persuasive book. It's certainly full of a ton of wisdom, history, poetry, and other um, tremendous things to, to reflect on. Rosalind Picard, thank you so much. Yep. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Thank you to Dr. Picard for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Gelb for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.